This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Nicene Creed. The scripture reading is from Psalm chapter 68. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. May you blow them away like smoke as wax melts before the fire. May the wicked perish before God, but may the righteous be glad and rejoice before God. May they be happy and joyful. Sing to God, sing in praise of his name. Extol him who rides on the clouds. Rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. A father to the fatherless, defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in his sun-scorched land. When you, God, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook, the heavens poured down rain. Before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel, you gave abundant showers, O God, you refreshed your weary inheritance. Your people settled in it, and from your bounty, God, you provided for the poor. The Lord announces the word, and the women will proclaim it. I am mighty throng. Kings and armies flee in haste. The women at home divide the plunder. Even while you sleep among the sheep pens, the wings of my dove are shielded with silver, its feathers with shining gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings in the land, it was like snow falling on Mount Zaman. Mount Bashan, majestic mountain. Mount Bashan, rugged mountain. White gaze in envy, you rugged mountain. At the mountain where God chooses to reign. Where the Lord himself will dwell forever. The chariots of God are tens of thousands. And thousands of thousands. The Lord has come from Sinai into his sanctuary. When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Surely God will crush the heads of his enemies, the hairy crowns of those who go on in their sins. The Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan. I will bring them from the depths of the sea, that your feet may wade in the blood of your foes, while the tongues of your dogs have their share. Your procession, God, has come into view. The procession of my God and King into the sanctuary, in front of the singers, after them, the musicians, with them, are the young women playing the timbrels. Praise God in the great congregation. Praise the Lord in the assembly of, his Israel, of Israel. 
there is the little tribe of Benjamin leading them. There, the great throng of Judah's princes. And there, the princes of Zebulun and of Naphtali. Summon your power, God. Show us your strength, our God, as you have done before. Because of your temple, Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts. Rebuke the beast among the reeds, the herd of bulls among the calves of nations. Humbled, may, they bring, may the beast bring bars of silver. Scatter the nations with delight in war. Envoys will come from Egypt. Kush, we submit ourselves to God. Sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Sing praise to the Lord, to him who rides across the highest heaven, the ancient heavens, who thunders with mighty voice. Proclaim the power of God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the heavens. You, God, are awesome in your sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. Awesome, glorious God, we bow before you as the God who saves. From you and from you alone comes escape from death. And we pray now that you would open our hearts by your mighty Holy Spirit and pour in the resurrection joy of Jesus Christ himself. And as we hear your gospel proclaimed, may we see our Lord, our Redeemer, the crucified one who has risen and ascended. And may we too sing songs of joy before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Oh man, man, I am looking forward to this message. I hope you are too because we are celebrating Easter Sunday effectually in November. I hope no one's angry about that. But every time we meet on the first day of the week, we are celebrating that we worship no dead and buried Savior decomposing in a cave somewhere in Palestine. We worship a king and a lord and a commander who lives and who is present among us by his Holy Spirit. We are slowly working our way through the Nicene Creed. And today we are meditating on this clause here where it says, On the third day, Jesus rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so since we are talking about the resurrection and since we are celebrating Easter, I feel it would be appropriate for us to exchange the traditional Easter greeting today. So I'm going to say Christ is risen, and you are all going to respond and say, He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Okay? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. Alleluia. Amen. Because thank God, the story of the gospel does not end with the crucifixion. And last week we did meditate on Jesus on the cross, crucified, dead, and buried for our salvation. But if the story stopped there, it would not be good news and it would not be a gospel. As St. Paul said, if Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, we are of all people the most to be pitied. We are wasting our time gathering here. We should be doing crack cocaine and hiring prostitutes and drinking and eating because tomorrow we die and life is basically hopeless and despairing. But Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. 
And we're not looking this afternoon to a rotten corpse for salvation. Our eyes are lifted on high where Jesus, our Savior, is sitting, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. The good news of the gospel is the news that Jesus is risen. And this was the message first proclaimed by that mighty throng of women to whom the risen Lord first revealed himself and then the company of apostles. And if you read through the book of Acts and you read those sermons that Luke records as Paul and the other apostles go from city to city in the Mediterranean world, their message was not look back to the cross for salvation. It was this Jesus who was crucified by the hands of wicked men God has vindicated by raising him from the dead and exalting him to be prince and savior to bestow repentance and eternal life to everyone who believes on him. All preaching in the book of Acts goes through the cross to the resurrection. Because if you stop at the cross, there is no gospel and there is no good news and we are just like the disciples despairing on Saturday that the Messiah has been defeated and we are still in our sins. After the message today, we are going to sing a very, very old hymn that goes back at least to the 6th century and probably before. It's called the Paschal Traparion. Paschal from Pascha, meaning Easter. A Traparion means a very, a very small song. This one is only three lines long. And it goes like this. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and on those in the tombs, bestowing life. A very, very old hymn that God's people have been singing for centuries and centuries. And traditionally in the Orthodox Church, this hymn is sung on the morning of Easter as the faithful gather outside the doors of the church. And this is the refrain, and the verses are taken from Psalm 68, which, Psalm 68, which Timothy read to us. Not a psalm you would read in your private devotionals and immediately think of Easter and the Ascension, but the early church on whom the light of Easter morning was shining could not help but read these psalms, and this psalm in particular, as pointing to Jesus. And I hope you'll agree with me when we're done here that Psalm 68 actually gives us a deeper and a richer sense of what it means to confess that Jesus is risen and ascended. Now, Psalm 68 is actually one of the most difficult psalms. There is a, a guy from the 17th century who called it the scourge of critics and the torment of commentators. Of course, I discovered this after I had chosen the psalm, but fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And though the details are obscure, and I'm not going to attempt to explain every verse, the theme of Psalm 68 is very clear. And here it is. When God fights and conquers evil, the lowly rejoice. When God fights and conquers evil, the lowly sing songs of joy. Here are God's suffering people crying out for deliverance, and Yahweh himself, their creator, rides to their rescue on the storm clouds. And in, in God's terrifying presence, the wicked are blown away like smoke, 
and they melt like wax before the fire as God effortlessly defeats those who stand against him. The warrior God tosses aside kings and emperors and Pharaoh and his chariots and horses. God drowns in the Red Sea as his people go through safely on dry ground. God doesn't do this because he is a bloodthirsty God who loves killing people because he enjoys violence. God rouses himself on behalf of the weak and the oppressed. Think of the pagan nations surrounding Israel. And in these these empires and city-states, there is the God at the top of the pyramid, and the king-priest is the one who is serving him. And this God, this pagan God, is basically validating the authoritarian, totalitarian power of the king or the ruler of the city. And everyone is down below him, down in the mud. Their existence is only as slaves meant to prop up the king. And here is the God of Israel showing up. And in verse 5 of Psalm 68, he's declaring, I am a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. It turns out the God of Israel is a very unusual God because he uses his power on behalf of the weak and the helpless. And this strange God steps forth and he says, I am the God of abandoned children and of vulnerable women. I am the God of the slave and the refugee and the migrant worker. These are my people. I am the God of the physically handicapped and the emotionally and mentally broken. I take the side of every person who is looking in on life from the outside. All of life's losers, these are my people. And I boast that I am the God who rides to the help of the helpless. And so when God sees the misery of Israel toiling away under the lash in Egypt, and he hears their piteous cries for deliverance, God is roused, and he goes in holy fury to destroy Pharaoh and break the chains of oppression. And Exodus tells the story of how God demolishes the greatest empire of earth. From the inside, he destroys it, and he leads the march of the prisoners from the land of slavery through the wilderness. God guides and protects and provides for them, and then he settles them in the promised land, the land of plenty. And it's there in the tiny nation of Israel, barely a nation, just a loose confederation of little tribes, that the God of all the earth chooses to make his home. And in this psalm, David pictures the mighty snow-capped mountains of Bashan, modern-day Syria, Mount Hermon, gazing in envy on Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is not a great mountain, even in its own immediate surroundings. It's basically an unimpressive hill. There are many more awe-inspiring peaks where God could choose to dwell, just like there are many more awe-inspiring empires and nations where God could make his home. But it's in Mount Zion that God chooses to dwell. And it's with this little helpless nation of Israel. These are the people that God, in his sovereign, inscrutable mercy, God has chosen to adopt. And in the psalm, it's supposed that David is picturing the Ark of the Covenant. 
this gold inlaid chest covered by the cherubim and their overshadowing wings, the throne of God being born through the wilderness by the Levites through, through Sinai, now being taken in joyful procession up through the winding streets of Jerusalem to its resting place at the top of Mount Zion. And the musicians and the dancers and the singers and the woman with their tambourines are all chanting together, our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Because when God conquers the forces of evil, the lowly sing songs of joy. And David's heart is so full that he knows that this God is far too glorious to be confined to this little mountain, to be circumscribed within the boundaries of Israel. And in his holy imagination, his prophetic imagination, David sees envoys from Egypt and ambassadors from Sudan, Cush, coming to submit to God. And David calls to all the nations of the earth, sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth, sing praise to the Lord. Because this Yahweh, this deliverer, this redeemer, this creator is not the possession just for one little nation. This is good news for all the peoples of the earth. Now, we have very good biblical license and authorization for taking Psalm 68 and applying it to Jesus. Because if you turn with me for a moment to Ephesians 4, Paul quotes verse 18 of this psalm. Let's jump into Paul's letter to the Ephesians for a moment. Chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Paul says, To each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, quoting our psalm, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. And Paul goes on to ask, What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And so Christ himself, he goes on, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. This is a remarkable quotation because Psalm 68 is actually not a messianic psalm. It doesn't refer to the Messiah or the Christ or God's anointed one or any earthly king. The subject of this entire psalm is God himself. And verse 18 is very clearly talking about God ascending on high, taking all these captives and gifts. And amazingly, Paul has no hesitation in taking a verse that can only refer to God and applying it to Jesus and saying, this God, this Yahweh, this creator of all the earth is Jesus Christ himself. So here are the very earliest followers of Jesus who have somehow come to the unshakable conviction that Jesus of Nazareth, who walked among them, who had died on the cross, he had risen from the dead, and he was actually the same I am who I am, who had destroyed Pharaoh and his army and liberated Israel from Egypt. 
And now the Lord God himself has come in human form to do what the book of Exodus was only faintly pointing to, to destroy death forever. So when we confess with the Nicene Creed, as we will all do out loud together before communion in a few moments, when we confess that this Jesus Christ suffered and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and was buried and rose and ascended to the right hand of God, we are chanting the saga of the Son of God going forth to war. Of Christ Jesus striding forth alone into the darkness and when all seems lost, emerging on the third day from the tomb with the keys of death and hell hanging from his belt. I can't do better than quoting this, this Puritan, John Flavel. Here's how he summarizes the doctrine of the resurrection. Our Lord Jesus Christ, by the almighty power of his own Godhead, revived and rose from the dead to the terror and consternation of his enemies and to the unspeakable consolation of believers. To the terror and consternation of his enemies and to the unspeakable consolation of believers. All the weak, all the lowly, all those who are crying out to God for deliverance from our enemy. Who is the enemy we're talking about? Scripture really describes a three-headed apocalyptic monster called sin, Satan, and death. Sin, Satan, and death. God's enemies and our enemies. Sin. I'm talking about sin with a capital S because sin is not just choices that we make that we're responsible for. Of course it is. But sin is a kind of malevolent power that has its hooks deep inside all of us. It enslaves human beings, forcing us to continually poison ourselves. And sin binds us in shame and guilt, in an addiction that we love and that we hate at the same time, and it keeps us in the slavery to prevent us from going to God in freedom and love and joy. Sin with a capital S. And the second head is Satan, this glorious fallen angel who has now lured humanity to its ruin in the garden. And this Satan is surrounded by hordes of demons, of fellow fallen angels, and he's constantly going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may steal from and kill and destroy. And if that's not enough, there's a third head to this enemy, death. The terrifying fate that awaits us all. And even as we're sitting here, the candle is flickering, and the sand in the hourglass is slowly, inexorably running out, and then all of our lives will be extinguished. Every single person here will be erased from existence, briefly mourned, and then forgotten. Sin, Satan, and death are triple-headed enemy. Not that we are in any shape to put up much of a fight. We're completely under 
our enemy's domination, and we can feebly try to resist, but the enemy laughs at our attempts to overpower it. Sin, Satan, and death are the enemies of us all, but not just our enemies. These are God's enemies. Let God arise. May his enemies be scattered. Verse 1 of Psalm 68. Sin, Satan, and death are ruining God's creation. These are outsiders. These are interlopers. And they're taking the most beautiful and precious things that God has made, human beings, sacred image bearers, the height of God's glorious creation, and they are destroying and defacing and wrecking what God has made. And it's impossible for God just to sit idly by and go, well... Whatever happens, happens. Que sera, sera. If they're dead and destroyed and lost, it's no skin off my nose. God is being personally attacked and insulted and mocked by this triple-headed enemy. And so the Son of God goes forth to war, to fight the strong man, to strip him of his armor, to bind him, and then to take over his house to strip him of all his plunder, and to lead out the prisoners with singing, as David says. How does this happen? How is the resurrection connected with Jesus destroying this enemy? Well, here's how the early Christians in the, in the first centuries of the church would have described it. They would tell you that when death swallowed Jesus... It was trying to digest the indigestible. As man, as a human being, Jesus can do something that God can't, which is die. But as God, Jesus is also immortal and incorruptible. And St. Gregory of Nyssa famously described the humanity of Jesus as the bait And his divinity is the hook. And here is death, the greedy fish that has gulped down many, many, many human beings without effect, biting into Jesus and gulping him down. He takes in the hook. And as Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, it was impossible for death to hang on to Jesus. Impossible. Because death really is nothingness. It's the absence of existence. It's emptiness. The absence of life. Just as darkness is nothing in itself, but just the absence of light. But just like darkness vanishes the moment the light switch is flipped on, So death is flooded and overwhelmed and destroyed the moment the fullness of God's immortal life enters into the grave and begins glowing and shining there. I want to show you an icon, an orthodox icon of the resurrection. It's going to come on the screen here. And I sent Michelle down to, there's a little church in Mitzketa called Antioch Church. It's not the big Svetitsko Valley Cathedral. It's a little church, a much older church actually, down behind and below it. 
uh, near where the two rivers meet, where the, the king and the queen were baptized. And you'll see this, this is standard orthodox iconography of the resurrection. And there is Jesus, of course, at the center. And what he's standing on in the shape of a cross are the two doors of death and hell that he has torn off their hinges like a mighty Samson. And below them, in the blackness there, I don't know if you can quite see it, are broken chains and locks and keys and instruments of torture. And those two figures on the left and the right that the risen Jesus is grasping by the wrists are Adam and Eve. Grasping them by the wrists, not by the hands, because dead people can't grip you back when you take them by the hand. He takes these corpses by the wrists, and they're being taken up by Jesus as he rises. He's pulling them out of the grave. And to the right and to the left of Jesus are these various Old Testament figures. I believe that's King David on the very left. This is how Jesus rises from the dead. Not as a private person on his own personal expedition. Jesus is doing this on behalf of the whole people of God. And he is the one marching at the head of the army, clearing space as the people of God surge behind him, upward out of the grave, sharing in Jesus' immortal life. Because Christ hasn't just been resuscitated to his old mode of being like Lazarus was when he came forth from the tomb, only to die later again. Jesus has been clothed with the power of an indestructible life. And now he rides on the clouds to the place of supreme cosmic dominion at the right hand of the Father, declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, Romans 1. And from there, Jesus is sitting on the throne, reigning, holding forth his scepter, pouring out the spirit of Pentecost on us, to push back the hordes of death and evil and to bring the nations to worship the line of the tribe of Judah in the heavenly Zion. When God triumphs over evil, the lowly rejoice. Because our enemies are his enemies and his victory is our victory if and only if we belong to Jesus. How foolish you would be to try to fight sin and Satan and death, this three-headed apocalyptic monster, on your own. You will be destroyed. But if Jesus seizes you by your limp, dead wrist and pulls you out of the grave, you will share in his immortality. Jesus is the true and better David. Here's the enemy of God and his people, the Goliath, spouting mockery and blasphemies. He's belching and spitting these curses out of his mouth. And we are the trembling army of God on the hillside, wetting our pants in terror, knowing that if we march up to this enemy, we will be crushed. And then our David arrives, and with his five smooth stones... He conquers in weakness. He takes down the giant. And with his own sword, he cuts off the giant's head and holds it aloft. 
And in David, the whole people of Israel conquer, do they not? And they all get up and they surge down the hillside, shouting the song of victory, putting all the Philistines to flight. We have conquered. The victory is ours through David, through the son of David. And if we've been raised with Christ, if we've put our faith in him, if we've given him our puny little allegiance as God's Messiah and conqueror, we've already experienced the life-giving power of the spirit of resurrection as we're born again to new life in God. And this life-giving Holy Spirit that we experience in a small but real part in our own hearts and among us as we gather is God's foretaste and guarantee and down payment that we will rise from the dead on the last day when the trumpet sounds. Because we already have within us the spark of eternal life. There is immortality that cannot be destroyed in you already now that you have believed. And therefore, brothers and sisters, we are immortal, indestructible, and unconquerable people through Jesus. And so we sing songs of joy in the face of our enemies. Here comes sin, declaring that it has domination and victory over us. And we say, along with Romans 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in me. The resurrection is alive in my own heart. As Jesus from his throne continuously pours power into my life. The power of sin to dominate and control and enslave has been broken if you are a Christian. The only power sin has left over you is the power of bluff. And it uses that power to its full extent. And it lies and it deceives and it whispers in your ear, you can't beat this sin. You're going to come back to this sin no matter how long you resist because I own you. I control you. You are addicted to me, and you cannot break it. And we believe the lie. We are deceived by the bluff. And we need to remind ourselves the chains have already been broken. The chains of sin on you have already been broken. You don't need to be freed. You don't need to pray for freedom and liberation. You have already been freed. Jesus has broken those chains, and he has snapped those chains. Locks, And now we have the joyful task of allowing the resurrection light and life of Jesus to shine into every dark corner of our hearts and in faith say, in Christ Jesus and only in Christ Jesus, I am a conqueror and I am more than a conqueror. In myself, of course. I'm tiny and I'm feeble and I'm weak and I am helpless. But it is no longer I who live. It is the risen Christ Jesus who lives within me. And so we sing with joy in the face of sin. And here comes Satan with his hordes of demons 
trying to frighten and terrorize and intimidate us. And I tell you, it would be foolish in the extreme to underestimate the forces of evil arrayed against us. We are fighting superhuman, superintelligent forces continually bent on our destruction. We stand against them in the name of Jesus. And we stand under the banner of the risen King. The banner that bears the image of his foot crushing the head of the serpent. And Satan, he is twisting and he is writhing in his fury because he knows his time is short. It is very short because he's already been defeated by Christ and it only remains for him to be finished off. And finally, we will all stand before death. All of us, every single person here has a meeting appointed with death, the last enemy. And my job as your pastor is to prepare you for that meeting. And that is our job every time we meet and confess the creed and sing these psalms and pray for one another. We are helping each other for that day when we will face down death for ourselves. And many of us are already facing the power of death at work in our own bodies. There was a preacher in Philadelphia named Donald Gray Barnhouse, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He's long since gone to be with the Lord. But his wife died when she was quite young. And on the way home from the funeral, he was driving with his children in their station wagon. And his bereft sons, I believe, were sitting in the back seat and they were waiting at a red light. And a large moving van pulled up beside them and its shadow fell on their vehicle. And Dr. Barnhouse turned and he asked his sons, boys, would you rather be hit by that truck or its shadow? And they said, Daddy, of course, we would much rather be hit by its shadow. He said to them, sons, the truck of death hit Jesus so your mother would only touch its shadow. And we are all going to go through the shadow of the valley of death, not through death itself. We fear no evil because Jesus has already defeated that enemy before us. And when we go into the land of darkness, we will see Jesus' flag already flying over the fortress. We will see the gates already torn from their hinges. Jesus was here. And therefore, none of us are truly going to die. We will simply fall asleep in Jesus to be woken up by the heavenly alarm clock, the trumpet of the archangel, summoning us to the life of resurrection immortality. And on that day, we will all be singing, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? 
Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Jesus Christ is victor. Shall we pray? Oh, mighty, sovereign, conquering Lord, we rejoice that your eye is on the weak and the helpless, on those who are oppressed and dominated and humiliated by our enemies and yours. And we thank you, O God, that for us and for our salvation, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to conquer. And in his presence, the enemies have fled. They have vanished like smoke in the wind, like wax before the fire of his holy, victorious presence. O Lord, may all our days be marked by his victory. Fill us with the joy of the resurrection. And may the light of Easter shine on our faces and in our hearts that we might sing with joy before Satan, before sin, before death. May his victory shine in our lives. In his mighty name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.